you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and what we have here in Acts chapter 16 in verses 1 through 5 is a picture of discipleship. As we learn more about the Apostle Paul, we understand that discipleship was at the heart of his life, that he understood that each believer has an opportunity and an obligation to pass on what they know to others. I've often said uh, that Christianity is like a relay race. So we are to pass the baton from one generation to the next. And we see that driving Paul here in Acts chapter 16. Luke writes, beginning in verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this text, uh, we pray uh, that uh, you, you would give us understanding of how it gives a picture of our call to discipleship and our call to disciple others. May we have an eye uh, to uh, who we could encourage in the faith. And through that, may your kingdom continue to grow. Uh, we pray that if there are any here this morning who have not trusted in Christ for salvation, uh, that they would take that first step of discipleship, which is being a follower of Christ. For this we pray in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. So here Paul is retracing uh, the route of his earlier missionary journey. We saw last week uh, the falling out that had occurred between uh, Paul and Barnabas as a result of Barnabas's desire to take John Mark with him. And here we see that Paul uh, continues to have uh, that desire uh, to raise up the generation behind him, which is what uh, moved him uh, to bring John Mark in the first place when they had initially left on the missionary journey. And as we consider Timothy, uh, this follower of Paul, this disciple, we understand that he's not the most likely candidate for someone to pick. Even with what Luke writes here, we understand uh, that, that Timothy doesn't come from the, the most straightforward of backgrounds. Luke tells us that as Paul comes here, a disciple is there named Timothy. We don't know when Timothy began his uh, discipleship, when he became a follower of Christ. It's very likely that he heard the gospel uh, during Paul's earlier missionary journey, and uh, subsequently he has grown in his faith. But Timothy's background leaves many questions. Notice what Luke tells us, that Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman who is a believer. 
Paul would add to that. He was not just the son of a mother who was a believer, but he was the grandson of a grandmother who was a believer. And yet, there's a big question mark in his life. But, there's that but there, a disjunction. His mother's a believer, but his father was a Greek. His mother was a Jewish woman. And if you're not aware, the Jews traced their lineage matrilineally. So it's traced from the line of the mother. So Timothy is a Jew with a Gentile father. Notice what Luke doesn't say. He doesn't say his father was a Greek believer. His father was a Greek. His father was a Gentile. His father was a pagan. And yet Paul finds in this blended marriage, and this is a blended marriage, it's not the biblical ideal, because Paul would write a letter to the church of Corinth instructing them not to be unequally yoked. The light doesn't have fellowship with darkness, but for some reason, Timothy's mother, a Jewish woman, had married a Gentile man. And yet, in spite of that great hindrance, because anyone will tell you, statistically speaking, uh, children often take after their fathers when it comes to matters of religion. And yet, despite the fact that he had a pagan father, God's grace was greater than Timothy's genealogy. Paul, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, would address Timothy's heritage, not addressing his father, but addressing his mother. In his final epistle to Timothy, Paul writes... In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So whatever his father's role in his life, we understand that Timothy's grandmother and mother had a great influence in bringing him to the point of being a follower of Christ. We understand that during his time as a believer, he developed quite a reputation for himself. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And yet, when we read later on, it seems that despite his being well spoken of, Timothy had a timidity to him. Paul has to write churches telling them to put Timothy at ease. Paul has to write Timothy reminding Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and self-control. And so uh, many commentators think that uh, Timothy has a, a retreating nature. And yet it's Timothy that Paul chooses to be with him. Think about the great expectations being placed upon Timothy, the great obligations being placed upon Timothy uh, in continuing his life of discipleship. Paul, Luke tells us that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. 
Just in those few short words, we get a picture of what discipleship is really about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, German martyr of World War II, uh, put it in two words in the title of the book, Life Together. In that book, he quotes Martin Luther, who admonishes those who cannot be in the company of others should not be alone. And he says that those who cannot be alone should not be in the company of others. There's a balance required in the Christian life. Uh, We we are called, and this gets thrown out a lot in our day and age, but not, not actually practiced, we are called to do life together. Discipleship and requires being together. We often think that we can be discipled uh, through media sources, that we can be discipled by reading a book, we can be discipled by watching videos online, but that's not the biblical picture of discipleship. To truly be discipled requires a, a, a close in view of someone's life. The author of Hebrews points this very reality out. In Hebrews 13, 7, the author of Hebrews uh, writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There is an assumption in the New Testament understanding of a life of discipleship that you're in such a close relationship with them that you can see what they're doing in their life. Unfortunately, I think in our day and age, we often, all across the world, fall short in this. We want to have separation. We want to separate our Christian life from our everyday life. And yet, that was a thing unheard of in the early church. And so Paul desires for Timothy to accompany him. And Timothy would. Timothy, even from a distance, would be a lifelong follower, not just of Christ, but he would follow Paul as Paul imitates Christ. Timothy would learn from Paul what it means to be a follower of Christ. And writing his son in the faith for the last time, 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, Paul would tell Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct. So Timothy, in his accompanying Paul, had a close-in view of what Paul's day-to-day life was like. Timothy knew how Paul lived his life from the moment Paul lifted his head off the pillow in the morning to the moment that he laid his head on the pillow at night. Timothy knew Paul. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim at life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. But it wasn't simply that Timothy followed uh, the example of his godly grandmother and his mother and the example of Paul. Timothy had a more certain foundation for his life of discipleship. As we consider Timothy, we understand that discipleship is based upon a life rooted in the Word of God. 
Paul would tell Timothy in chapter 3, verse 14 of 2 Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy's foundation was relational, but it was also biblical. His life, his understanding, his character was to be shaped and formed by the Word of God itself. When Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, he wanted to not substitute Scripture, but he wanted to shape how the Word of God was present in Timothy's life. So Paul recruits Timothy. It's interesting, Luke doesn't really tell us much about what Timothy thought about this process, which as we continue on in the next verses, leaves many questions. Notice, so Timothy is, genealogically speaking, because he has a Jewish mother, he is Jewish. Unfortunately, because of his father, Timothy has never taken that first step of Jewish faithfulness. His mother never took that first step of Jewish faithfulness in the life of Timothy. So, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, but there's a significant roadblock. And he took him and circumcised him, not because circumcision saves, but because Timothy, being a Jew, and everyone knowing his background, everyone knowing that he had a Jewish mother, uh, would be scandalized if Timothy had not taken that step. Again, that leaves many questions on what Timothy thought of this. Normally, circumcision was done at the eighth day in Jewish practice. Timothy is a young man, likely in his 20s. Uh, we know that later on, when Paul writes 1 Timothy to him, years later, uh, he tells Timothy not to allow anyone to despise him in his youth. So he's under 40, because once you hit 40, you're no longer a youth. So Paul has him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places. Paul understands that if Timothy is uh, his follower, if Timothy is learning from him, it's going to be a stumbling block to the Jews. And Paul, desiring not to create any additional offense beyond the offense of the gospel, has Timothy circumcised. For they all knew that his father was a Greek, meaning they also knew his mother was Jewish which means he's part of the Jewish community and ought to have been circumcised as a child. Timothy's role here on out in Paul's life and ministry, Paul would describe Timothy as his true child in the faith. He is going to be uh, uh, like a son to Timothy. He's going to be a mentee. Paul is going to mentor him in the Christian faith. Timothy is going to learn what it means to suffer for Christ. And so God blesses 
Paul in that. They can make their way on their journey. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered that to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So here Paul is modeling discipleship for them, one-on-one spiritual involvement. And God blesses it. And it's been said for years that the historic emphasis of Southern Baptists were evangelism and discipleship. And unfortunately, uh, the consensus, and I think the consensus is right, is that Southern Baptists, despite our continued emphasis on evangelism, have dropped the ball in discipleship. There are countless individuals who are baptized in Southern Baptist churches and then completely forgotten about. It would be like somebody has likened it to having a, a, a delivery ward, nursery of newborn babies. They're, they're born, okay, kids, take care of yourself. No, the Christian life, we need the involvement of others in our Christian life. We cannot, we ought not, and we will not be growing healthy Christians if we try to live our Christian life on our own. It has been said by others wiser than myself that every Christian should have a Paul, somebody older than the faith, somebody more experienced, somebody further along in life who who can encourage and disciple you. And every believer should have a Timothy, somebody younger, more inexperienced. We all need people in our lives. This was the biblical understanding of how the church was to function. It was never thought that we could live our Christian life with relative isolation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we understand that that was Paul's heart for the Christian life. Uh, he, he continues instructing that this is the model for how churches are to function. We see it in Titus 2. You know, Titus, another young man that Paul takes under his wing and disciples. And he tells Titus in Titus 2, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Notice, that life together, that one-on-one aspect, that Christianity is a communal faith. And unfortunately, we live in a time where that understanding of the Christian life has fallen on hard times. There are many people uh, trying to live out what is often called Lone Ranger Christianity. You, you ever watch the Lone Ranger? 
He kind of had a misnomer there because he wasn't really a lone ranger. Lone ranger wasn't by himself. He had his sidekick, Tonto, and he had his horse, Silver. Probably would have been a less interesting show if he really was a lone ranger. And yet, uh, many individuals try to live their Christian life in isolation from others. They don't have older saints pouring into their lives. And, they don't, and older saints often aren't pouring into the lives of younger saints. Now, the past several decades uh, in church ministry circles, there has been increasing compartmentalization within the church. Not only you have individuals isolating themselves from other believers, but you have groups of individuals isolating themselves from the greater church. Think of uh, my time in seminary, Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, uh, he teaches family ministry at Southern, and, and he calls it the siloization of ministry. And so what, what often happens is that we silo people off uh, in their particular age groups so that they have no interaction. Goodness, what would have happened if Paul had thought, you know what? I'm just going to hang out with older, more mature saints like myself. I'm going to take saints who are in the same stage of life, and that's who I'm going to associate with. There would be no Timothy. Imagine if Timothy thought to himself, you know, what am I going to learn from old Paul? Paul's old. He's past his prime, so what I need to do is I need to uh, associate with other young individuals like myself. Would have been a train wreck for Timothy. Proverbs tells us that folly is bound up within the heart of youth. And so we need each other. We, we see that here. You, you never see... One believer thriving in isolation in the pages of the New Testament. Because our Christian life, our Christian discipleship is based upon the principle of a life together. Now, I, I've shared my testimony before. You know, I, I got saved reading the Gideon's New Testament boot camp. And after I got home, I'm reading the Bible still. And if you read Paul's epistles, you'll notice that he uses a phrase, one phrase in particular quite a few times in regards to his commands. One another. There's dozens and dozens of one another commands. And if you, you actually start looking closer, many of the commands that, that are given as you are actually given in the plural, which would be y'all. See, Paul understood that there was no such thing as an isolated Christian life which wasn't part of a whole. And so I was reading my Bible and I understood, okay, I need to be involved in a church. This Bible is telling me to do things that I can't do my, by myself. You know, the Bible says love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another. You can't do that on your own. And so we are called the basic level of Christian discipleship to a life together, to a sharing of our lives. And how countercultural is that? 
See, there are individuals that think they're sharing their life when they take a picture of uh, their, their manicured life. You, you know, uh, kind of spruce things up. Uh, I heard a pastor share a story. He was at a coffee shop, and he saw somebody uh, set their Bible out and their notebook and their pen, and they get their coffee, and they take a picture, and they post it, and they pack it all up and leave. And oftentimes when people share their life, that's what they're doing a tailored picture of their life. That is not the type of sharing that we do. When Paul has Timothy accompany him, Paul doesn't get to filter out what parts of his life Timothy sees and doesn't. He doesn't get to choose to give Timothy a highlight reel. Timothy gets to see the good and the bad and the ugly of the Christian life, as Paul made abundantly clear to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Timothy had seen Paul, heard Paul's teaching. He had seen Paul's conduct. He saw his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness. He saw the high points, and yet he saw the low points, the persecutions and sufferings that happened to him, and his endurance and persecution. See, when we're doing life together, we're not going to be able to give people a false impression of what our Christian life is like. The challenge and the temptation that we face is that we are tempted to believe that if we call or text someone every few weeks, that, that, you know, that that's togetherness. That's not how the early church functioned. No, our current church practice, not our church in particular, but all across North America uh, is far afield from what we find in the pages of Acts. You know, when we read earlier you know, that they met daily, they met daily. There was no uh, understanding that they were going to safeguard part of their life uh, from... Uh, their Christian commitment. They understood that as followers of Christ that they were interacting with each other time and time again. And one thing I've noticed in my 10 plus years of ministry is that far too often we kind of firewall our lives or we buffer people out and we fall short of what this New Testament picture of discipleship is. And then... And then we're surprised when no one knows us. We're surprised when pain and loss and hardship comes and there's no one there because we haven't been walking in the New Testament model to begin with. We haven't been living life together. And so we find ourselves surprised when there's no one there in our suffering. You know, as a pastor... One of my greatest fears as a pastor is if I got hit by a bus, there are individuals that I wonder would they still be connected to the body in any meaningful way. Because all of us, as members of this church, if you are a member of the church, you, you have an obligation and a relationship to flourish with others. E you have an obligation to invest and encourage your fellow members. 
You know, the author of Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the want of some, but uh, all the more as the day draws near to gather together to stir up one another to love and to good works. And we don't get to decide, well, you know, I'm going to encourage brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so because I like them, uh, but I'm not going to worry about these others. The New Testament practice was that everyone was concerned about everyone else. And that's what Paul's living out here with Timothy. He, he sees a young man that has some potential, and he desires to pour his life into him. He's going to share his life with him. He's going to be uh, the major influence on Timothy's life. Because Paul understands that he cannot live his Christian life in isolation from other believers, and he understands that Timothy will not grow into his fullness in isolation. And so Paul takes him with him. So as we think of what this means for us as believers, this means that we we need to be more concerned about one another. We need to be more involved with one another. We live in a day and time where it's easy for us uh, to actually grow apart. See, there's going to be days and times when we need each other, and unless we're already involved in one another's lives, we will not know when those days come. And others won't know when those days come for us. You know, if we continue uh, this American practice of isolating our lives from the lives of others, we're going to be miserable and hurting people when life happens. Because I tell you, Life will happen. I remember there was a couple at my previous church. That they hadn't attended the church in about 15 years. They hadn't been really regular attenders anyway before that. They didn't have deep friendships and relationships within the body. And so when one of their children, they went through a series of hardships. Uh, One of them lost their last living parent. They had a niece die. And then uh, one of their children passed away, all within a four-month period. Because they didn't have any real connection, life connection with those in the church they were a member of. They were left hurting. And no one cared for them. Nobody visited and called because nobody really knew what was going on. The only reason I know is I I visited them and they said, this is why we're not at church. Because we went through a very hard season and no one was there. The, The fact of the matter is oftentimes people aren't there because we weren't there in the first place. There are individuals that will find themselves with no one there because they weren't there. We're called to accompany one another. We're called to be together. So for you who are followers of Christ, we are pushing back against the world in this because the world will tell us that we're to value our privacy above all else. There's no such thing as a private Christian life. Your lives don't occur in isolation. You might think, well, you know, what what does my life have to do with everyone else? Well, your life can be an encouragement to others, or maybe your life needs the encouragement of others. 
You're not an isolated, solitary individual. You're part of a family. And think of your family reunions. You know, if you don't show up to the family reunions and don't talk to them, nobody's, nobody's going to know what goes on in your family. And so nobody can be there in the hard times. So for those of us who are believers, the call from this passage is that we need to be with each other far more than we are. For those of you who are unbelievers, the first step of discipleship, the first step of life together is believing in Christ. We live in a day and time where some are arguing that unbelievers need to belong before they believe. But the New Testament model we find here is that you're a believer first. You're a disciple first. And because you believe, because you're a disciple of Christ, that's why you belong Sometimes uh, unbelievers will attend church and, and, and they'll feel like they're on the outside. Well, as an unbeliever, they are. That's how it should be. You shouldn't be able, if you're an unbeliever, you shouldn't expect to feel a, a part of a church when biblically you're not a part of Christ's body. And we as believers need to be better at this. We should live such lives and have such relationships that the lost unbelievers look at our relationships with other Christians and think, man, I want that. So we can tell them, you get that through relationship with Christ. We're going to come to a time of invitation. I ask you to search your, pray that the Spirit would search your heart in these areas. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we pray that as you've called us to live a life uh, of care and concern for one another, that our lives would be indeed reflected by this emphasis of life together, uh, that we would pour our lives into those uh, uh, that, that are growing in their faith, that we would learn from those who are ahead of us in, our faith, in the faith journey. And that through that, your grace would be magnified. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.